scripture reading this evening will be from Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be delighted and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant, and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Thank you, Billy. Everybody have an outline? It should say Isaiah uh, 2 at the top of it. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, there are so many great things for us to think about tonight, but with limited time, we pray, Father, to, to be blessed in our seeing and in our hearing, and able to, to understand at, at least another step, another, another degree of depth, the greatness of the words of this prophet. It's our prayer, Father, in the name of Jesus, that, that his, his words about the singleness of heart and the greatness of your power and the beauty of being in Your presence, and the greatness and the glory of Your future, Father, and, and so many more things will, will all become a fixture of the way that, that we think and react and respond and live and think and the way that we view this world. You are the Creator, and You are the Holy One of our lives. And we pray, Father, that, that You will bless us as a church in this community to live out the ramifications of our salvation and Your great grace in our life. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, uh, we talked about the way that you could divide Isaiah into maybe three, at least two different places, uh, or in two different sections, maybe three. Uh, you can do that by dividing it uh, from chapters 1 through 36, chapters 37 and 39, which really deal with uh, some of the things that were happening historically with Hezekiah and then chapters 40 through 66, or just chapters 1 through 39, 40 through 66. And basically you have kind of a working outline of how Isaiah divides up and, and, and might be helpful for your study. Uh, this morning, as we looked at chapters 1 through 39, out of the many themes, in fact, uh, I can't remember the, uh, the commentator that, that said it, but I, I certainly felt it in this study, that one of the, the really difficulties in, in, in doing anything with Isaiah is that it's hard to narrow it down to one word because there are a hundred different themes in, in each of these sections. And I think that's true. 
But the one thing that we looked at this morning in those first 39 chapters is the word trust. And if there's a, maybe a key verse at the center of Isaiah, it might be Isaiah 50 verse 10. It says, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. They went to the kings, they went to the people, they went to the priests, they went to everyone that called upon the name of God to trust in his name and to rely on him and not the idols. Now tonight we're going to consider the second half of the book, chapters 40 through 66. And uh, there is a, a, a simple outline that uh, a fellow by the name of Brian Byer has, uh, has offered that I think, in a sense, forms a pretty good starting play, place for us to understand chapters 40 through 66. Now, as a part of the introduction, let's look at these three major themes in Isaiah. Number one, God's people are in captivity because of their sins. That Babylonian captivity is a reality because of the sin of Judah that persisted, although the prophets warned them again and again and again of punishment and a judgment because of their divided heart, because of the idols, because of the oppression, because of false worship. In Isaiah chapter 29, the prophet says, you know, the people draw, God says to the prophet, the people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far away. And as we've talked about the history of Israel during this period of time, Jerusalem itself is destroyed about 587, 586 B.C. by the Assyrians. And chapter 40 begins sort of a, a turn from that captivity with a message of comfort for those people in exile. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The exile and the captivity by the rivers of Babylon was because of that idolatry. Because they had strayed from faithfulness to God's Word into all kinds of different religions and, and, and really a, a, a culture that was ignoring Torah and was unraveling in, in the relationships between a man and, and a woman and a, and a man and his, his fellow colleagues and his, his neighbors in that community. And God became angry with His people and this is stated when God speaks to Babylon. He speaks to Babylon, the nation, and says, I was angry with my people. He's talking to Babylon and says, I was angry with Judah and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hands and you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged, you laid a very heavy yoke. And later God is going to say in Isaiah chapter 54, for a brief moment, and this now he's speaking to, to the Jews, the Hebrews themselves. He says, for a brief moment, I abandon you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face uh, from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Which leads us to number two. Not only are God's people in captivity because of their sins, but the captivity proves that God is God because He's the one that predicted it. Although this, this exile to Babylon is terrible, and it looks like defeat, it really isn't a defeat of the purpose of God with Israel. Why? Because he predicted it. And he predicted it long before Isaiah. God challenges. When you read Isaiah chapter 41, uh, 40 through 66, one of the things, it's like reading the book of Job. You have to really pay attention to who is speaking. And so in chapter 41, God ch challenges the idols in that chapter to set forth their arguments. Why should you be God? Why should the people bow down uh, uh, to you? Can you really predict what's going to happen in the future so that Judah can... can can with accuracy know how to respond and know how to live and know what the final outcome is going to be and get prepared. 
And even long before Isaiah, God had predicted that this kind of judgment would come upon them if they did not live faithfully in covenant with Him. You go all the way back to Moses, the first great prophet, Deuteronomy chapter 18, first great prophet in Leviticus chapter 26, beginning in verse 27, going uh, about 12 verses or so to about verse 39, God says that He is going to scatter Israel among the nations and draw out His sword against His people because of their unfaithfulness. And then some, some years later, about 40 years later, as the people are getting ready for a second attempt to enter into the promised land, at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 49 through 63, God again addresses the lack of faithfulness on the part of Israel and how God will bring a nation as well as plagues against them for their faithlessness. And then as we have seen in the book of Amos, as we studied Amos a couple of weeks ago, Amos chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Amos is getting this song together in, in north Israel to try to convince them before destruction comes to them in 721 that they need to repent. And part of this song where every verse represents a nation and a nation's sinfulness against God because of its, its inhumanity to other humans, he says the, in the verse right before he gets to Israel, these about Judah. He says, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed, I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem, which is sort of a poetic way of saying that there's going to be a terrible siege of Jerusalem and a destruction that is going to become, that's going to come upon the city of God and its temple. And then a little bit later, and we'll be looking at Micah here very quickly, Micah chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money, yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? And so what Mike is talking about is there came a point in the history of, of South Judah that they would say things like, uh, is not the Lord among us? Are we not God's people? Is not the Lord among us, His chosen people? They would have these, these sayings, these mantras that they would repeat over and over again to reassure themselves that even though they were straying from Torah and straying from the Word of God, that because these, 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 these things were being said enough and enough and enough, they became believed even in spite of the prophecies against it. And so Micah continues, No disaster will come upon us. Why? Because the Lord isn't with us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. And what Micah is saying is just because you say this over and over again, it's a lie. And even though you say this lie over and over again to the point that you believe it, it's still a lie. And this is what is going to happen. Because of your faithlessness and the oppression and because of all of this injustice in the land and because the priests are teaching for a price, then this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem and my city. And the exile was not just proof of God's power, but God's intent to have a people live faithfully in covenant with Him as a light to the nations. Then the third, the third point is that God will redeem His people. They are in exile because of their sin. That the exile is proof that God is God because He predicted it. Chapters 40 through 66. And then God will redeem His people. Now initially, this redemption is talked about through, or in terms of, what, what Isaiah refers to as my, my anointed, my Messiah, Cyrus the king of Persia. Notice Isaiah 44, verse 28, who says of Cyrus, who is the king of the Persians, 
He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. And then you go to the very next verse, chapter 45 and verse 1. This is what the Lord says to His what? Anointed. To His anointed. To Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before Him and to strip kings of their armor, and so on and so on. And so at, at, the, uh, at the beginning of this particular part of history, it's going to be Cyrus, who is the Persian king, who's going to defeat Babylon, who is going to be the gateway and the leader of the superpower of the world at that time to bring the people back. And this is what we read in the last couple of verses of Second Chronicles. The last chapter is chapter 36. The last couple of verses, 22 and 23, we read these words. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may, be, and, and may the Lord their God be with them. And so what that does is sort of open up the history for us to begin thinking about Ezra and Nehemiah, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks. But in chapters 40 through 66, Isaiah also begins to take this idea of redemption. That it's not just that these people are going to come in from exile and begin to repatriate Israel and and in Ezra, they're going to, to rebuild the temple. And Haggai is going to get all over them. And, and then later on, Nehemiah is going to come and want to build a wall around Jerusalem. But he begins to take this concept of redemption further than just the Jews returning to the land from exile in Babylon. Notice Isaiah 55 and verse 13. Instead of the what? Thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of what? Briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Thornbush and briars, thornbush and briars, thornbush and briars. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like Genesis 3, doesn't it? When it sounds like the cursing of the earth because of sin being introduced with Adam and Eve and the, uh, the temptation by Satan, there is the very beginning of creation. And what Isaiah is, 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 is seeing and communicating is that one day, instead of this thorn bush and instead of this briar, instead of these symbols or these signs of the curse, there's going to be the juniper and there's going to be the myrtle. That at some point, the curse is going to be reversed. And then Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22 and 23, it says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I am sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. That phrase, all you ends of the earth, means that what it is that Isaiah is talking about on, on behalf of God is going to be greater than just what is happening in Jerusalem. It's going to be greater than just what happens to people who have the DNA of, of, of the Jewish nation. It's going to be for all the ends of the earth. And at the same time, Isaiah begins to speak about this mysterious special servant of God who is going to get the job done. That he is going to, to, to appear and he is going to be the one who is faithfully going to fulfill all it is that God has in mind. And, and so there's this other redeemer that begins to be talked about in Isaiah. 
And he begins in Isaiah chapter 9, speaking of this one who's going to be born as a son, and the government of God will be on his shoulders. It's a passage you know well. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and of the greatness of his peace, there will be no end. It's a different kind of a kingdom. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteous from that time on and what? Forever. And so as you read through these chapters, there are these things that begin to be lifted out of the text that stand out about the suffering servant. Uh, number one, he will be announced by the voice of a herald. He will be announced by the voice of a herald in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 4. There is this voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way for the what? For the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground will be made level and the rugged places made a plain. That is the language of a herald that is going forth before the, the procession of the king, reminding the people and telling the towns that the king is coming. And because the king is coming, the king is not supposed to walk up or down, walk up a hill where he sweats or walks down a hill where he might stumble. He's not to trip over rough places. It is supposed to be an easy going because he is the king and there's no one else like him. That's what this language is. It is the voice of one saying that you've got to prepare your way for a king who is coming. And then number two, he's going to bring water to barren places. It's kind of a strange way to talk about this special servant. But over and over again, the, the idea of him bringing an abundance of water to parched places is talked about all the time. In Isaiah chapter 41, beginning in verse 17, the poor and the needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights, and the springs within the valleys, I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. That in this special servant is going to bring an abundance of water to the barren places. That people that are thirsty are going to have their, their thirst uh, sated or slacked. Number three, he will be tender with the weak. He will be a different kind of a leader. In Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arm and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. He's going to be a different kind of a leader, this, this special servant of, of God. Where all of the other leaders are out there showing power and showing influence, this is the one that is going to be more like a shepherd. While all the young Turks and all the, the, the young strong ones are going to be running out ahead and doing their own thing, he is going to be with the weak. He's going to gather the lambs in his arm and he's going to carry them close to his heart. The weak are close to this one's heart, and he's going to gently lead those that have young. And then you go two chapters later to chapter 42 and verse 3. A, a, a very incredibly poignant metaphor. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And that bruised reed and that smoldering wick are representative of people. But there are people, the, the, the reeds that he's, he's talking about here are those, those long reeds that would be used as, as a staff. And when that thing became bruised or became weakened in the place, you couldn't put all your weight down on it because it would fold. And what this special servant is going to be about with the weak is not putting a burden on them that they cannot bear. 
I'm not putting on them the, the kind of life or the, the, the kind of existence that's going to cause them to fold at some point. And then there's the smoldering wick. And I don't exactly know what he's talking about in a smoldering wick, but in my house, uh, we burn a lot of candles. Ellen is a, is a candle lady. She likes those candles. And I, I like them too. They make the place smell pretty nice. And one of the things that, that always strikes me is you can have this candle that, that smells like a Christmas tree or it smells like a cake in the oven or it, or it, it smells like, like pine trees or, or something. And it, the house can be, smelled, can, can, can be filled with the, the aroma, the smell, the odor of these, of these trees or these candles. And it's brilliant and it's bright and it's wonderful and it's delicious. And then what do you do? You, know, you, have, you, you try to put out that, that, that flame and what happens? It begins to smolder. And if you're not aware that the candle's on, all of a sudden you think the house is on fire. And it's kind of an irritant. And I, I don't know if this is what he's really talking about, but there are people that are sort of a smoldering wick. They're, they're, their life is about to go out. Their, their, their flame is, is beginning to diminish. And they're the weak. And a lot of times the weak are just so terribly irritable to us. They're just an irritant to us. The way that that smoke coming off of that, 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 that wick is that when you're trying to snuff it out. And, and there, are, there are people that are just kind of that close to going out. And because they are an irritant to us at times, all we want to do is just lick our fingers and, and, and make sure that they go out completely. And what this special servant does is completely different. The smoldering wick he will not snuff out because what is it that he really does with that wick? He begins to blow on it. He begins to nurture it. Not too much. Not too much because then that will, that will really kill it. But he begins to give it what it needs in the proportion and the measures that it needs. And he begins to get that flame going again. That smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. He will be tender with the wick. And then number four, he'll lead the blind to the light. In Isaiah chapter 42, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known along unfamiliar paths. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. And then number five, He will bear and suffer and die for the iniquity of His people. And that brings us to that famous chapter in Isaiah chapter 53. The whole chapter, you're sometimes tempted to read at a moment like this, but it's verse 5 that we'll look at right now. He was, he was what for our transgressions? He was pierced. And He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. By His wounds we are healed. It's, it's a very graphic verse. When, when you think about something being pierced, uh, you think about something beginning on one side and going through to the other side and coming out on the other side. And whatever that's about, this special servant is going to experience a piercing for our transgressions. When you, when you, think, about, when you think about crushing, it's about heavy loads. It's about heavy loads coming down on top of something or force being applied to something that breaks it up into little pieces. It's about being fragmented. He was crushed and broken up for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We're the ones that have wounds. He takes on those wounds in order for us to have healing. And then finally, the Spirit of the Lord will be on Him. And in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 3, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of what? Of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. This special one that is coming on whom the Lord's Spirit is placed and does all of this, has this, 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 this multiple ministry to people is basically about reversing the human condition. When you think about the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament law, you know, the Old Testament law was really there, you know, to say it one way is the Old Testament law was was there to help people understand how they are to live in their unholiness and in their sin with a God who is holy. By doing these things and by living according to this law and practicing these practices, you know, God and man can be in harmony with one another. From another standpoint, when you look at that law and all of the things that you had to do in order to maintain that, have that relationship with God maintained, one of the things that it, it, it communicated to us was that we were not beautiful. That in our unholiness and in our sin and in our iniquity and in our transgressions and in, in our brokenness, that we were not beautiful. But the one who is coming, the special servant, is going to reverse all of that. To those that are ugly, he is going to put a crown of beauty and, and, and an oil of, of joy instead of mourning. And instead of being in sackcloth and ashes, instead of the spirit of despair, it's going to be a garment of praise. Praise why? Because of the nearness of God and the relationship with God and because of the relationship that has been wrought by this special servant. And Isaiah does, you know, says some other things about this special servant, but never really identifies him. But then some, some centuries later, you go to the middle of the first century A.D., there is this, this, uh, this individual... Uh, we don't really know his name or really much about him except that he was a eunuch and he had gone from the court of Candace to Jerusalem and was on his way back and he's on the Gaza Road. And this, this fellow by the name of, of Philip is told, you need to go to, to, to the road uh, that goes to Gaza and he, he's transported there and he sees at a distance this chariot and the voice says to him, you go up to that chariot and when he gets there, he sees his eunuch. And this eunuch is reading from the book of Isaiah. And he's reading from chapter 53. And he's bewildered by it. He's intrigued by it, but he's bewildered by it. And Philip sees what it is that he's reading. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, you know, I don't really understand any of this. I need somebody to explain it. And Philip gets into the chariot with him and explains the passage in light of Jesus. And beginning there, explains Jesus. And he tells the story of Jesus that, that there was this one by the name of John the Baptist who appeared in the wilderness preaching like Elijah a message of repentance and baptizing people in the Jordan River. That his was the voice of one calling in the wilderness to make straight the paths and to, to, to bring low the hills and the mountains and to raise up the valleys and those rough places to be made smooth and those unlevel places to be made plain. And he's baptizing people in the Jordan River and he's pointing to Jesus. And this Jesus appears on the scene and he begins to teach and he begins to preach. And one day in John chapter 4, John meets, uh, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at a well in Sychar. A Samaritan woman. She's not Jewish. She's a Samaritan. And not only is she a Samaritan, but she's a woman which causes 
you know, some, uh, some, uh, some uncomfortable moments for her. And then on top of that, she's going to that well in the middle of the day with that, with that water bucket because she is ostracized from all of the other people in that village. She has messed up in her relationships, divorced and remarriage, divorced and remarriage, and now she's just living with a guy. And Jesus asks her for a drink of water. And she says, you, a Jew and a man, are asking me, a Samaritan, a woman, for a drink of water? And he says, if you really knew who was talking to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water and you would never have to come back. And then one day at a feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, this same one stands up and announces that anyone who comes to him and believes in him, as the scriptures have described him, they would have living water flow from within them. And Philip tells his eunuch that Jesus was tender with the weak and healed them. That one day he stood up in Matthew chapter 11 and he offered to anyone who was weary, who needed rest, to take his yoke upon them because it's light and they'll find rest in him. And this same Jesus in John chapter 9 encounters this blind man. The disciples want to know who sinned, that this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus says, neither. This man was born blind. You might see the work of God in this man's life. And he heals the man of, of his blindness. And, and this man is, is, is credited with saying one of the most important, one of the most emotionally packed statements in the entire New Testament, especially John's Gospel. He says, Whatever you're talking about in terms of your debate about him, I don't know. What I do know is that I was blind, but now I see. And then Philip would tell this fellow that he would die for the sins of the people. And that's really what Isaiah 53 was all about. That Isaiah 53 was about this servant that would come and there was nothing about him that was, that was beautiful, that we would be attracted or take notice of him. But it was, it was the Lord's will to take his special servant, his perfect special servant, and lay our transgressions, our iniquity, and our sins on him. And that he would, he would not just bear these sins, but that he would be pierced for our transgressions. And he would, he would be crushed for our iniquities. And that he would be, he would basically be massacred in order that by his wounds we might be healed. And you know what that eunuch did? That eunuch at some point heard all that he needed to know about this special servant, this one named Jesus, who was the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah. And at some point, Philip had talked to him about, about baptism. He said, you know, look, here's some water. Why can't I be baptized? That's what I want. What it is that Isaiah was talking about, that you have identified as Jesus, the Messiah of God. That's what I want. And you know the rest of the story. Isaiah helps us to understand the will of God when it comes to everyday living. That, that it, is, it, is, it is about faithfulness and about trust and about following Torah. And it's, it's about the way that you treat other people. But it's also about knowing that, that this world is not going to be the way that the world is now. That one day the thorn bushes and the briars are going to be changed to junipers and to crepe myrtles. It's going to be the curse. It's going to be reversed. The world is going to be changed into the place that it was supposed to be. And it also includes you and I being changed into the kind of people that we need to be. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And, and maybe you have, you have never given yourself to the Messiah that, that is talked about from Genesis to Revelation.
that all Scripture points to Him. And the greatness of His Gospel is that your life, because of the fact of His life and His perfect living and His acceptance through love for our sin to be put on Him as He is crucified and pays the penalty for our sin so that we might receive His righteousness and become the children of God and have that inheritance, that's all available even today. And as we're singing the song, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. And if there are ways that we can minister to you tonight, we want you to talk to these shepherds as we stand and sing together. Oh, the